Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, affirmative action in higher education. We'll discuss why they were put there in place and why they're still challenged in the courts. From Georgia State University, Professor Tanya Washington-Hicks joins me. Also, Speaking of Georgia State, in 1956, three women sued to desegregate what was then the Georgia State College of Business Administration. Barbara Hunt was among the three. Her daughter, Crystal Freeman, tells her story. All that's just ahead. But first this. It is day two of the federal hate crimes trial of three white men convicted of murdering Ahmaud Arbery. Lily Oppenheimer reports during opening statements today. It will actually Monday in Brunswick. Federal prosecutors focused on racist text messages sent by the man who fatally shot Arbery. Prosecutor Bobby Bernstein quoted the texts sent by Travis McMichael to a friend, which referred to black people as animals, criminals, monkeys, and subhumans. A mostly white jury was seated Monday morning. The three defendants, father and son Greg and Travis McMichael, and a neighbor, William Bryan, face federal hate crime and attempted kidnapping charges. All three were convicted of murder at the state trial in November. That trial had just a single black juror. Now prosecutors will try to prove the three men chased down and shot the 25-year-old black jogger because of Arbery's race. Out of the 12 jurors selected, eight people are white, three are black, and one is Hispanic. There are no black alternate jurors. Lily Oppenheimer, WABE News. And in other news, residents of East Cobb could get to vote May 24th to decide if they want to form their own city. The Georgia House voted 96 to 62 Monday to send a proposal for a city of East Cobb to Governor Brian Kemp for his approval or veto. Now, proponents say cityhood will bring government closer to the people and give residents greater control over development. Opponents question the need for the city and raise concerns about cost. If the referendum passes, voters would choose a mayor and six city council members in November, and the new city will begin operations January 1st. Speaking of the Georgia legislature legislature this week, the Senate Education and Youth Committee is advancing a so-called Parents' Bill of Rights. This legislation would let public school parents request records and information from schools and would give schools 30 days to respond. The bill is similar to an existing State Board of Education rule, but Republican Senator Clint Dixon, the bill's sponsor, says the proposed legislation has more muscle. This would codify this in state law, which would be clear and and precise. I mean, you know, board rule can be undone, you know, fairly easy. Some critics of the bill accuse lawmakers of trying to appease a small group of angry parents. And finally, Atlanta Braves fans interested in seeing the world champions trophy up close 
will have their chance to do so today as the team launches its 151 victory tour stops. The first stop for the Commissioner's Trophy will be Colony Square in Midtown, where it will be on display until 3 p.m. today, which means you have just a couple hours. Do not try to take it or touch it. The trophy uh, next heads to Georgia Tech. Thursday for the women's basketball game against Notre Dame. Again, no touching. Fans across the Southeast will have the chance to check out the trophy as it makes one stop for each year the Braves have been around. You're saying, what? Why? Well, the Braves were founded in Boston and were known as the Boston Red Stockings. See what y'all learn on this program? This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Amplifying Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. It was a landmark case and the first time the nation's high court weighed in on affirmative action policy. Alan Bucky, central figure in a major civil rights case, returning to his home in Los Altos, California tonight after winning his fight to enter medical school. I I think it's just a reflection of what life is like in the United States today. It's a reflection of eight years of, of Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford, and it's a reflection of an American society which says we've given these people enough. Uh, They can sit in the front of the bus. They can sit downstairs in the movie theater. They can register to vote. Um, Why aren't they happy with that? Uh, This will bring the civil rights movement back into focus where the majority of Americans can support it. And and that's uh, going to be a real plus, I think, for the uh, long term in this country. My general view is that affirmative action has been enhanced. That's what I told the president. And he was pleased to know that. Uh, Whether you lose five to four, uh, uh, eight to one, uh, a seven to zero when it's all said and done in the ninth inning you've lost a great decision those archival clips courtesy of c-span you may recognize some familiar voices in that piece then georgia state senator julian bond and of course civil rights leader reverend jesse jackson the ruling from the supreme court it involved alan Bakke, who sued that he was denied admission by the university of california davis school of medicine because of his race Bakke was white now, decades later, the Supreme Court is still hearing challenges regarding affirmative action. Well, today we're going to focus on the history of it, these policies, what they were initially supposed to do, and just why there are still challenges. And joining me now to add some perspective and insight from Georgia State University's College of Law, Professor Tanya Washington Hicks. Professor, thanks for ta- taking the time. Glad to have you. Uh, it's great to be here, Rose. Let's begin here, as I always say. Um, you're a fourth-generation educator, correct? Yes. Actually, fifth. Fifth. Growing up, what did you hear about education in terms of access and opportunity for black Americans? What did you hear? It was incredibly important. My mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother were all educators as well. And so education was presented as a way to uh, maintain one's um, standing in society and to achieve social mobility. And so it was the bedrock of you know, my upbringing um, and something that was prioritized in, in my family. 
You, your mother, your grandmother, and your great-grandmother? And my great-grandmother. Tell me about your great-grandmother and what type of educator she was. She taught all of my um, maternal parents and grandparents taught um, elementary school. And so they were early childhood education education, um, folks. And my great-grandmother taught um, primary school, which is what it was called at the time. And so there was, you know, there were always books around. I was always encouraged to read and you know, it was a way of making sure that you were going to be successful in life. Your great-grandmother, her name? <sighs> Mother Gardner. That's Mo- what we called her. Mother, Mother Gardner, Gardner, I imagine, was teaching then during segregation. Yes. She was, um, her mother was had been enslaved. Her father was the plantation owner. Um, and so she was one of those first generations post-slavery that was allowed to experience freedom. I don't want to shift from our conversation, but are you ever going to write her story? You know, I, I had not thought about it, Rose, but as as we talk, it's a story that needs to be told. Because uh, I, I want to know more. she was, yeah. <laughs> I am because she was. And I wanted to start with that, Professor, to lay out for some people, because I think sometimes when I have experts on, academics on, I think sometimes people think, Y'all don't have a personal story, you know, that there's no connection here. So that's what I wanted to start with that. And when we talk about affirmative action law and educate for our listeners, how these how the policy first, just the origin of how it came about. And I believe it came under President Kennedy, but how it came about and what was the original purpose of having what we call affirmative action policy or law here? Yes, it was instituted, as you said, uh, Rose, under President Kennedy. Um, in an executive order, and he created a committee that was chaired by then Vice President um, Linda B. Johnson to actually oversee that order. And it was targeting racial discrimination against federal contractors. There was a lot of money and a lot of opportunities that Black contractors were locked out of by law, right? So we're talking about discrimination that didn't just involve how people feel but being locked out of social, political rights, uh, economic opportunities. And so it was a bulwark against centuries of racial discrimination. And so in terms of equal access and opportunity, what did it mandate? What were the provisions here? The provisions prohibited discrimination against people on the basis of race, but it also affirmatively provided opportunities that they otherwise would not have had an opportunity to access. And we can imagine that folks probably this assumed this is just for people of color or back then, because I use this word, Negroes, they probably thought this is just going to only apply to black folks. Absolutely. Absolutely. Before we take a deeper dive into this, in terms of historically, what does data reveal about who has benefited from affirmative action policies? There have been a number of studies at the state level and at the federal level that show that white women have been the greatest beneficiaries of affirmative action. And so the shift to gender access um, away from just racial access has definitely benefited that group. There's data out there and there needs to be more data that that doesn't just talk about gender, but talks about race within gender. But the data that's out there shows that white women have been the primary beneficiaries. And when it comes to affirmative action policies, particularly in higher education, how would you assess since then, and you can give it a grade, you're an academic, 
Y'all always go further. You can give it a grade, but obviously you can add more context to it in terms of how it was implemented, what it was supposed to do, and have folks of color benefited too? I think some would say yes. I think that affirmative action, I would give it a C. Really? Um, Yes, because when it starts to actually achieve progress, there have been these fits and starts. So we move forward two spaces and then we move back three spaces. And a lot of that is because of the way that the court has narrowed over the years since the Baki case that you introduced the segment with um, was decided in every case subsequent to that, there's been a narrowing of the way that you can use race. So it can't even achieve its intended purposes to the full extent possible. We have people fighting about affirmative action, but when you look at the statistics of blacks at indigenous students and Latinos in institutions of higher ed, we're still significant minorities. And when we talk about, and I've had this conversation before, when we talk about the percentage, I want to focus on your area, percentage of black Americans, black folks entering into law, and then also who are just active attorneys within the law, the legal field, it's extremely, it's a very, very low percentage. Yes. Um, there, if we don't have black students admitted to higher ed, we are not going to have black judges, black professors, Black doctors, Black teachers, Black engineers. So it is going to have a significant and adverse impact on a lot of professions because we won't be in those spaces to be educated to do the, that work. If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation from George, with, from George State University School of Law, Professor Tanya Washington-Hicks, and we're talking about affirmative action policies, law, what they were supposed to do and what they are doing and why they're still challenged. Well, let's. I want to continue what you just said because then there is there this misconception about affirmative action who benefits. You just said, based on what happens with the, we're going to get into this too, the the Supreme Court hearings that they're going to have soon, the outcome of that could determine in terms of not only just higher education, but other areas in terms of equity and, and, and diversity and all of that. That's what you're saying? Yes. I mean, we just won't be there if we don't have Black, Indigenous and Latino folks graduating from colleges and universities, which is a prerequisite for graduate school and professional school, you won't have Black, Latino, and Indigenous professionals. So you'll you'll have the only person in courtrooms as the Black defendant. No Black judges, no Black prosecutors or defense attorneys. And that means our society is going to be um, devoid of all the contributions that professionals of color can make and have been making. For some listening, it says, well, then some believe states then should not have their own affirmative action policies, or perhaps this federal provisions should be the guiding factor. But we, of course, have all these challenges to it, to affirmative action now in, in, in terms of the nation's high court. So where's the balance here? Should each state sort of have their own policy or should there continue to be this federal provision? And perhaps that needs to be overhauled, but you know, that takes an act of Congress and that's a whole nother conversation. I mean, I think, I think racial diversity, which facilitates educational diversity is important as a national priority, right? It affects, um, you know, um, it affects our health, our economic health. It affects our, Um, security as a nation. And so 
we don't want a patchwork of laws, right? State by state where some states value and recognize educational diversity and others don't. We do need a national policy, but as the court prepares to render a decision on whether affirmative action will continue, that is in jeopardy. And, and that decision will affect public and private colleges and universities across the nation. Professor, explain to our listeners why this is a 14th Amendment sort of challenge in a sense, what folks, what SCOTUS will hear. This is folks challenging the constitutionality of this based on the 14th Amendment. Yes. So the 14th Amendment is the Equal Protection Clause. And the argument that's being made um, by the uh, plaintiffs, the parties challenging Harvard and University of North Carolina's policy is that they are being discriminated against because um, or Asian Americans and white Americans are being discriminated against because seats are being given to black and Latino students and indigenous students that don't have the same scores. And so their rights are being violated to be treated equally under the law. So the reverse discrimination claim and the discrimination claim both fall within the ambit of the 14th Amendment. You said something I want to focus on because I think folks have heard that phrasing of reverse discrimination and people will argue, well, first of all, discrimination is discrimination. You can't reverse it. But your folks are when they use that argument, you're assuming that discrimination is because it only applies to black folks. And so when you say it's reverse, it's because of someone of another ethnicity or race. And that's just simply not the case. And I hope I didn't confuse anybody because I'm not a attorney. Right. Well, it's, it's interesting, Rose, the Baki decision that you talked about from 1978, where all of this kind of started mm-hmm. in terms of the court history. Um, the court made the observation that discrimination, whether it is for the purpose of harming and excluding or for the purpose of um, creating an opportunity is still going to be subject to what's called strict scrutiny. Mm-hmm. And that is the most exacting constitutional scrutiny where they take a very close look at it. They determined that not only black folks and people of color are protected by the 14th amendment, but white people are protected against racial discrimination as well. Is this what then those at North Carolina and, and Harvard, those who are challenges, that's what they have to prove or make the argument to SCOTUS? Yes, they have to prove the universities that are on the defensive are going to have to prove that they have a constitutional, uh, constitutionally compelling justification for using race in their admissions policy. But if we go back to the Baki case, Professor Washington Nix, the, the SCOTUS ruled that Cal- the, the University of California Davis School of Medicine did have the constitutional right to have a policy in a sense. It was like it was twofold. It's like the, he won, but then he didn't win. He right. won, but then the action still won, if that makes sense. I don't know. Well, they, they allowed, the court allowed for the purposes of racial diversity, which facilitates educational diversity. It's mm-hmm. an aspect of educational diversity, that that is the compelling interest. So then everything switched from remedial affirmative uh, action, curing the past, to diversity, which actually benefits everybody in the classroom. That then became, after Gruder and Fisher, the only reason that you can use race in admission. And Fisher was the University of Texas yes. lawsuit, correct? Mm-hmm. And for our yes. listeners, both just, of them, two of them. And that was a white woman, correct? Yes. So both Gruder mm-hmm. and the plaintiffs in Gruder and in Fisher 
versus Texas were white women plaintiffs challenging the use of race-based admissions policies. Given the current makeup of SCOTUS in terms of how folks in the ideology of how they think the justices were ruled, how do you see this? What will be, through your lens, what could be the deciding factor for SCOTUS to rule in favor of North Carolina and Harvard based on these other cases we just talked about or maybe rule against? Well, in those cases that we talked about, um, Justice Thomas, Justice Rob, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Alito have made clear that they don't think race should be used at all for any reason. This case would present the perfect opportunity for them to overrule Grutter and say, you cannot use race conscious admissions policies, period. Instead of limiting how it's used, they can outlaw its use. And that is going to affect every public and private university that receives federal funds, which is all of them. The students get federal loans, you know, even if it's a private institution, they're receiving federal funding. So this is going to have a cataclysmic effect across the nation on colleges and universities if they do decide to overturn um, the landmark decision in Grutter recognizing racial diversity as a compelling constitutional goal. What do you think will be then the institutions will have to prove then in order to prevent that from happening? I mean, we talked about data earlier. I don't know if this yeah. is where you bring in charts and reports. I, I think that these three justices and perhaps the three newest justices on the bench are prepared to overrule Bruder and there is no data that these institutions can present to show that um, we need to continue using you know, race conscious policies. Just Chief Justice Roberts has made the statement that the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. And so he considers these policies to be antithetical to Brown versus Board of Education and to serve no good constitutional end. And so there's no data these schools can present to challenge that framework and that thought process if that's where the court wants to go. I have a listener who writes, well, then, if what the professor just said about white women having benefited the most from affirmative action, wouldn't that be a a factor for the justice to consider if they're looking at this from a historical standpoint? They, they could consider it, but a lot of um, even those that have supported um, affirmative action in the past are saying it has run its course, it has done what it needed to do, and it is no longer necessary, right? And so those that historical piece is not going to answer the, the, the perspective that affirmative action is no longer necessary, just like the perspective of the court was that voting rights protections are no longer necessary. This is not just one case. This is a case that fits within a pattern that the court is um, pursuing in terms of drawing a line in the sand and saying, we need a colorblind society, and that's going to start with a colorblind um, jurisprudence that does not allow or accommodate race-conscious policies and practices. If you were arguing this case on behalf of the institutions, what would you focus on? I would focus on the harmful effects of the absence 
of affirmative action. I mean, if we think about it, it started as a way to respond to pervasive and widespread and systemic racial discrimination. That reality still exists. And even with the most robust affirmative action programs, we still see abysmal numbers in terms of Black, Latino, and Indigenous students. So without any programmatic initiatives, we are going to see all white classrooms and all white universities. And I don't think that's good for our society and our nation, given that we are such a diverse population. We don't want everyone educated to be white. When we started this conversation, you talked about being a fifth generation educator. You talked about your great grandmother. When you think about what she was trying to do and you think about now, what's the correlation here? Make that connection. Yeah, I mean, my mom wanted to attend FSU in Tallahassee, but she couldn't because they didn't admit Black people. So she went to Howard University, which was a great institution. But I'm the first in my family to have benefited from policies that stand in opposition to racial discrimination. So it's not about letting people in who are not qualified. It's about letting people in who would otherwise be denied the opportunity because of a systemic racialized policy of excluding Black, Latino, and Indigenous people. And you went to Harvard Law School, correct? I did. I attended University of Maryland Law School and then went on to Harvard for my LLM. And I think my students would miss out on a, on a lot in, in the classes that I teach um, and in classes that are taught by other professors of color. And that's going to be more of a reality if we see the court ending all affirmative action. From Georgia State University's College of Law, Professor Tanya Washington-Hicks, thank you so much for taking the time being a part of this conversation. I really appreciate it. Compelling conversation. Yes, yes. Thank you, Rose. I appreciate it. And we dedicate this to your great-grandmother. Absolutely, Mother Gardner. Thank you. Culture Look continues. This is 90.1 WABE, Amplifying Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. In just a moment, I'll be joined by Crystal Freeman, daughter of Barbara Hunt, one of the three black women who sued to desegregate what was then known, what, what is now known as Georgia State University. But first, we're going to revisit a conversation with Maurice C. Daniels from 2019. He's the Dean Emeritus and Professor Emeritus of the School of Social Work at the University of Georgia. And we discussed his book about a landmark case, and it's called Ground Crew, The Flight to End Segregation at Georgia State. That title comes from uh, the acceptance speech of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. uh, in accepting the Nobel Peace Prize. And he Mm -hmm. said, every time I take a flight, I'm always mindful of the many people who make a successful journey possible, the known pilots and the unknown ground crew. Mm-hmm. And uh, these individuals uh, are unknown. Uh, this case, uh, in large measure, is, is unknown. Although, uh, as you indicated, they paved the way uh, for colleges and universities in Georgia uh, to become uh, more uh, diverse. And uh, so I believe it's uh, important that we commemorate them and we commemorate uh, the struggle in which they were involved in Uh, which certainly has helped to make
democracy more reality uh, in our state. And in fact, you write that the decision by these applicants to apply to then the Georgia Business College, it was not random. You write this case, quote, fit into the NWCP's grand strategy to defeat segregation in higher education. So what was the strategy here then? The strategy uh, was uh, to end segregation. And uh, Mm -hmm. that strategy included... um, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund working with um, local lawyers and local activists such as Myra Elliott and Barbara Pace Hunt and Iris Welch uh, to challenge uh, the status quo at that time, which blocked African-Americans from being able to, t- to attend so-called white colleges and universities. In fact, so you talk about some of the black business communities and the attorneys that supported the civil rights work, this all being part of the strategy. And I want to just shift for a moment because I want folks to understand, if they don't, understand what the climate, the racial climate was like in 1956 here in the Atlanta area. The racial climate in 1956, uh, in the 1950s, in the Atlanta area, uh, was strictly segregation. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was, um, in colleges and universities such as Georgia State, downtown Atlanta, uh, which is the focus of this book, uh, black students were simply not allowed uh, to attend. Mm -hmm. And the state engaged in all kinds of devious tactics and measures uh, to keep them out. Uh, As an example, uh, in the Georgia State case, uh, the Officials of the Board of Regents established a policy called the Alumni Certification Requirement, which required uh, these black students uh, to obtain alumni certification endorsements from white alumni. And, we're, uh, and let's be clear, how are they going to get that? Yes, that, that, therein lies, lies the point. Uh, and that's just, just one of the measures. Uh, they also had a out-of-state, the regents had an out-of-state scholarship program for Negroes, as it was called. And this program was designed to send black students out of state uh, if they were interested in in attending uh, one of the white colleges and universities for the sole purpose of maintaining uh, strict segregation uh, in among the colleges and universities uh, in our state. And also, just to let our listeners know, when we talk about the, the, the Georgia, the Georgia State, the, this business college, it was located off of Cortland. Is that correct? That is correct. That is correct. This became obviously a high profile case. But and based on, on what you you were able to discover, it, you said to be in the courtroom based on the research you did. But the, in the courtroom, you had the media and you had the Board of Regents members. Were you able to to speak with folks who could really take you there to that courtroom and feel this tension here? Yes, I was uh, able to interview the uh, eminent uh, civil rights attorney, Donald Hollowell. Uh, I was always also had an opportunity to interview the uh, eminent uh, attorney, Constance Baker Motley, and mm-hmm. they both uh, shared uh, insight into the uh, tension and the uh, resistance. Uh, that they faced uh, in uh, the the courtroom. Uh, in fact, um, in one instance, uh, when Mr. Hollowell was um, examining a, a, a witness, mm-hmm. the um, attorney for the state uh, uh, did not pronounce the word Negro yes. correctly. Yes. And uh, Mr. Hollowell had to uh, object uh, to his... Uh, use of uh, the Mm N-word, and 
the attorney, in essence, the state's attorney, in essence, said he uh, has been pronouncing the word Negro uh, that way uh, literally all of his life. So that's just an example of the kind of environment and the kind of um, uh, resistance that uh, these uh, attorneys, as well as their clients, faced. But the defendants, what was their legal... Did what was their legal standing? I mean, did they give it kind of it seems silly asking, but how did they defend this? Or what, how did they try to defend this, this rule of, of, of barring these, these applicants? The state was determined to maintain segregation and they used every uh, measure that they could. Uh, most of them were quite devious to try to block these students from uh, attending uh, not only Georgia State University, but the University of Georgia and other white colleges and universities. Mm -hmm. uh, their defense uh, was very weak, and uh, that's why in this case, uh, the uh, brilliant attorney, brilliant lawyering of Attorney Hollowell and Attorney Motley and other attorneys uh, prevailed and um persuading the judge uh, that the state's uh, defense of this system of segregation uh, was uh, literally uh, not to be continued. Well, Dean, let's talk about the judge here, because this is Judge Boyd Sloan, correct? That is that is correct. And and Judge Sloan, in history will tell us, had some, was involved in some other rulings. Coming into this, what did you find in terms of were there concerns about Judge Sloan, and was it did some think this might be an automatic win for the plaintiffs here? Or did the defendants think, well, you know what, we've got Judge Sloan, so maybe that's a win for us? Sort of what was their thinking going into this trial? In my interview with, uh, by that time she was a federal judge, federal judge Constance Baker Motley, uh, she said that the, they were quite surprised uh, by the favorable ruling mm -hmm. uh, by uh, Judge Sloan. Uh, judge Sloan stepped up and honored his judicial responsibility and, and made the right decision. He is on the right side of history, mm -hmm. uh, so to speak, in regard to ruling uh, in favor of um, eliminating and declaring uh, unconstitutional the segregationist practices of uh, Georgia State and the Board of Regents. Well, Dean, but there were also some limitations to this, his ruling, correct? Because from what we understand, I don't want to give too much away, but the plaintiffs weren't able to enroll as a result of the ruling. That is indeed correct. Uh, the judge declared that the practices uh, uh, and of the regents uh, and Georgia State were, in fact, unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. He did not go and take the next step and order the admission of the plaintiffs to Georgia State. He left that to the discretion of the university and the regents to do the right thing. Uh, sadly, in the late 1950s, uh, whites who propped up the segregationist system were not inclined to do the right thing. Uh, two years later, uh, in the University of Georgia case, mm -hmm. and incidentally, the Georgia State case, and as in many ways, uh, paved the way uh, for the success in that case. The judge in that case, federal judge William Boodle, also declared that the University of Georgia uh, was in violation of the United States Constitution. Mm -hmm. uh, he went one step further. Not only did he declare that uh, UGA, uh, UGA's practices at that time, segregationist practices, were unconstitutional, 
He also ordered the immediate admission of Charlene Hunter and Hamilton mm-hmm. Holmes. He ruled on Friday and ordered their admission on that Monday, so he did not allow for the kind of discretion which Judge Sloan did. Mm. Maurice C. Daniels, Dean Emeritus and Professor Emeritus of the School of Social Work at UGA, speaking with me back in 2019 about his book, Ground Crew, The Fight to End Segregation at Georgia State. And one of the three women who sued was Barbara Hunt. And we're going to learn a little bit more about her as we welcome Crystal Freeman to the conversation, Hunt's daughter. Crystal, welcome. Thank you. I don't know about you, but for me, one of the most cherished I guess memories I have with my mother, Virginia, was when she was pressing my hair and all the conversations we had while she was pressing my hair. Um, Is there something similar for you and your mother, Barbara Hunt? Yes, I have very fond memories of my mother. Uh, One great memory I have is that she used to always say, if it's to be, it's up to me. Yeah. She used to say that all the time. If it's to be, it's up to me. Can you recall when you first learned about your mother's role with these two other women in trying to, in, in suing to desegregate what was then, it was a different institution, but we call now Georgia State University. Can you recall the first time you, you learned of her involvement in this? Well, I learned about it actually uh, in high school. She, did, she didn't talk much about it prior to high school uh, when I was actually thinking about what school I wanted to attend um, after high school, that's when she started telling me about what she went through um, trying to get into college and her trials and tribulations of trying to get an education. And I just thought to myself, gosh, well, that's not a school that I will apply to. Really? If, if they treated you that way, that's that's not a school that I will apply to. And I just, you know, she said, no, no, no. I've done research and it graduates the highest number of African-Americans mm-hmm. now. You shouldn't feel that way. She told you that. But in the conversation or as you were learning of her role through your lens, how would you describe the, 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 the emotion behind still not being able to be admitted despite the legal ruling, which we just heard from uh, Dean Daniels there. Right. Yes, she was very disappointed. Um, The things that she talked to me about uh, that she went through were terrible, just really, really terrible. Having, you know, having to move, you know, my my two sisters, from many places uh, with the discrimination that was going on back in the 50s, uh, the way she was treated during the trial, um, just things that are unbelievable that she went through. What did she, well, I'm curious, and I think our listeners are too, Krista, what did she talk about in terms of, specifically in terms of the treatment and how she was treated during during this whole ordeal and with the case, did she get death threats? She got death threats. Uh, She sent my sisters to my grandmother's house in Pennsylvania. Um, She was told to leave the state of Georgia or she'd be killed uh, by the Ku Klux Klan. Um, She was called out of her name, threatened, just several things. Um, 
she was asked by Dr. King to to go and apply at that school. She he thought because of the the, the fairness of her skin that maybe just possibly they wouldn't even notice that she was African-American because she was so fair-skinned. And that's how it all started. Um, but that simply wasn't the case. So they, they knew. Crystal, did your mother ever talk about, I don't want to use the term giving up, but did she ever talk about reaching a point where maybe she had some regrets or, or maybe, you know, she said, you know, maybe we just ought to just drop it. Did, did she ever talk about that? Never, never, not once. Um, she she simply wasn't that type of person throughout her entire life for, for whatever she she did. She was never a quitter. Um, she, you know, she was the type of person, you know, with, with whatever she did, whatever she set out to do, mm-hmm. she had the type of determination unlike anybody that I've ever met to this day. Um, I wish I possessed the same quality. <laughs> I don't give up, but I don't, I, I don't, um, if I could be half the person that she was, I, I, I'd be pretty good. But no, she never gave up. She, um, no, she was never a quitter. As we heard in that piece, although in a sense they won, they were still denied entry. Yes, ma'am. She was denied entry. But that's, you know, that's the dark side of the story. My mother went on to graduate with two master's degrees. And although it's a sad part of history, the, the, the good part is that she didn't give up. She had such determination and she kept going. And where, you know, one person might be sad and and be in a dark place to have nothing nice to say. You know, my mother told me not to give up. And, and when I, you know, told her that's a school that I would never apply to, you know, she, she just simply said, you know, she lived long enough to see that it graduated the highest number of African-Americans in all nationalities. So she didn't, you know, she died without holding a grudge against the school. And I think that that within itself is phenomenal. I can't say that, you know, I would feel the same way. Hmm. Her relationship with the other two women with, with minor, uh, Myra Elliott, uh, what, what was that like? Did she talk about Were they very close? Did they remain close after? You know, my mother didn't, uh, speak much about them. I think that their relationship was strictly uh, with the lawsuit. If they had a relationship outside of that, it wasn't one that she shared with me. Um, I do know that she was the main plaintiff mm-hmm. um, of the lawsuit, but she didn't mention anything to me personally about a, a relationship outside of that. And we should know that the other woman was Iris Mae Welch. You mm-hmm. said that your mom didn't hold any grudges and you followed up. You didn't know if I could quite feel the same way. But is that perhaps because of what you knew your mother to be and when you, how you described us to, to, to the listeners when we first started this conversation? Um, that wasn't surprising to you that she did not hold a grudge when she look 
not just maybe, maybe some will say, well, it's not fair against the university. But look, the death threats, KKK, all of that, she would be, she would be well within her right if she did. Oh, yeah. She would be well in her right. Um, yeah. I, I say that because any, you know, anything my mother did, she never, um, she never held a grudge about really anything. Uh, growing up with her, you know, her working on different jobs, you know, she just was the type of person, you know, she was a live, live and let live and, you know, a godly woman. Um, she just didn't hold grudges. She just, she just didn't hold grudges. I, I just don't know anybody like her. Um, she didn't have time for drama and, you know, negativity. She just kept pursuing whatever it was that she was doing. She just always just kept plugging away. Now I will say this because you are your mother's child because you were persistent. You, you lobbied, you advocated, you told Georgia state, look here, <laughs> y'all need yeah, to do something. Y'all need to do something to recognize what my mother and others did here. Well, it was a struggle for me. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was a 10-year struggle. And I will admit to you, I started out with wanting a tree planted. And I have still, to this day, not gotten a tree planted in my mother's name. So, go figure. Well, Georgia, Georgia State has bought up a lot of property. There's definitely some room down there. Well, I've been told by many people that there's not, not enough room to plant a tree so i haven't given up though who told you that may i ask uh yes the 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 uh well they have a new president but the former president told me that my mark becker yes well there's a new president so you can reach out to the new president and i think um no i don't know maybe you'll get a different result what do you want folks to know about your mother barbara hunt I would like people to to know that she believed in an education and the importance of one, that she never gave up on an education. And it's the one thing, if there was anything that my mother taught me, is that it's the one thing that, that can't be taken away from you. You know, and I think it's something that this generation has just really lost and she was she was a teacher. You know, my mother was a teacher. I don't know if people know that. Mm-hmm. And it's so important to have an education because it is the one thing that they can't take from us. And education equals power. And, you know, that, that's that's something that I'd like for people to know, that she believed in an education and the importance of it. And I just wish people knew that about her often when we talk about progress and we look to history folks will say well then part of that is acknowledging and recognizing the injustices and as you continue to fight for even if it's just more than a tree but definitely one would argue that your mother and the other two women deserve more than a tree 
Um, yeah. And then you make this connection that we know that Georgia State University does graduate, from what we understand, the highest number of African-American students in the nation. Yes. Yes. What year did you lose your mother, Crystal? I lost my mother in 2005. Yes, ma'am. 2005. It's been 17 years. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't seem like it's been that long, but it's been that long. Oh, and the reason that the reason why it's, the tree is so significant is that my mother loved nature. Mm-hmm. You know, she loved trees. And um, yeah, not that anybody cares, but my mother loved trees. I think a lot of people care. Thank you. I think a lot of people care. Crystal Freeman, the daughter of Barbara Hunt, one of three women who sued to desegregate what we now know is Georgia State University, but still were denied entry. Crystal, thank you so much for sharing your mother's story. I really appreciate it. And look, if Georgia State won't give them a tree, we'll plant trees around here at Public Broadcast in Atlanta, WABE. I'll make sure of that. We got room for some trees. (laughs) Thank you, Miss Scott. Thank you. Come to emails. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. Sam Whitehead is our senior producer. Our other producers are Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. You can just send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's show, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. And remember now, later this month, February 28th to be exact, we are going to relaunch our Paycheck to Paycheck series. We're looking at how Georgians like you are covering their living expenses each pay period. We really want to hear from you. We want you to be part of this entire series. Visit another website for y'all. Visit wabe.org slash paycheck Take our survey, let us know how you're doing, and give us some feedback on what topics and issues you want us to cover. WABE.org slash paycheck. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. 
Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.